I'd like to start off with a pop quiz for all of you to set the stage for the message. Ready? <clears throat> with a show of hands, how many of you think you are very humble people? <laughs> all right, we have a couple of you. <laughs> There's going to be a special session afterwards by Jonathan to pray for you, give you some counseling, some therapy. Isn't that the thing about humbleness? As soon as you think you're humble, you've, you've lost it. Or how many of you, when you um, see a picture, a group photo, and you're in that photo, what's the first thing your eyes want to look for? Well, you're, you're like me. You want to find yourself. You're restless until you find your face. Like it or, or not, your face is important to you. Therefore, you're going to find your face. Or you're um, at a church luncheon, or you're at a reception, or you're at your small group uh, dinner, and you go to the dessert table, and the, and the dessert's been cut up. The pies, the brownies, the, the cakes, they've all been pre-cut. And you grab your plate and you go stand there. And what's the first thing your eyes look for? Ah, I'm not alone. The biggest slice. Why? Because no one else is more deserving of the biggest slice than... No, 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 me. <laughs> Let's get it right here. <laughs> How about your social media posts? Do we want to go there? Yeah, we want to go there. <laughs> the photos that we put up, which ones do we put up? The ones that make us look... Absolutely. The ones that make us look amazing. Doesn't matter what our family looks like. Doesn't matter that our spouse looks kind of weird, that our kids look awful. But as long as we're looking good, amen, we're posting that up. That's how we roll. Isn't it true? That's what we do. Because we're always looking to glorify ourselves, always looking to exalt ourselves, always looking to make ourselves look good. And we have a word in Christian circles. We call that... Oh my, you don't know. Well, okay, pride. There we go. We'll take that. And the opposite of pride is humility. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> As Samantha reminded us, we are, we are in a sermon series called Soul Food, and we have been journeying through the gospel of Luke, looking at various times that Jesus has been engaged in a meal with other people. And what we are learning is that whenever Jesus sits down to a meal with you, it is always more than just about the food. And so we have, over the last few weeks, looked at various events in the Gospel of Luke, and we are going to find ourselves once again uh, in a situation where Jesus has been invited to a meal. And as we look at this story in Luke chapter 14... My hope and my prayer is that this story helps us examine our hearts and our lives, that we will begin to take a fresh look at what barriers there might be in our lives that are preventing us from enjoying Jesus. Because the big idea, the, the, the theme that I want to leave with you this morning is that humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. Humility is essential for anyone to enjoy Jesus. We're in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, the first 24 verses of Luke chapter 14 all occur in one setting. It all occurs at one meal. But we're only going to look at the first 11 verses. And we're going to be in another Pharisee's home. And you would think by now that the Pharisees had gotten it, right? Because two weeks ago in Luke chapter 11, we saw a similar story. Jesus was invited to another Pharisee's house. And that didn't go well, did it? For the Pharisees. And you'd think they get it. But maybe not so much. So here we are again in another Pharisee's home. And as we look at this, again, I want to remind you that humility is essential for everyone to enjoy Jesus. I want to pull out two truths from this passage this morning 
that shows how we can either prevent or enable ourselves to enjoy Jesus. And the first is that pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus. Pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus. Look at verse number 1 of Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So let me pause right there and just say, so we are at another Pharisee's house, but Luke calls this man a ruler of the Pharisees. Most likely, he had oversight over the, over the local synagogue, or perhaps he was um, over a group of Pharisees in that town, but for whatever reason, whatever position he had, Luke denotes him as the ruler of the Pharisees. And you remember that when, when meals occurred in this time frame, we've seen this in, in the last few weeks, it happens in an open courtyard, right? People who are invited get seated at a table that's low to the ground, and, and they've got cushions that are all around the table, and they would sit on it and lean against the table to eat. And that's what those who are invited to the meal get to do. But because the courtyard is open, and if there's a famous rabbi or somebody important who's present at the meal, the courtyard would be open to the other people in the community who weren't invited to the meal, but they could still come and stand around the perimeter of the, of the courtyard and listen in on the conversation and get to watch you eat all that good food. I don't know how that works and kind of feels weird, but that's the culture. They get to stand around and listen in on the conversation. And so that's the situation we find ourselves in. But Luke gives us one more piece of information, and that is today is the, or in this particular case, it's the Sabbath day. Remember, Sabbath starts sundown on Friday and goes until sundown on Saturday. So this meal that Jesus and these Pharisees are about to eat wasn't prepared right then and there. It was prepared before sundown on Friday. So Jesus and these Pharisees probably just finished a service at the synagogue And they're walking, and they've walked to this Pharisee's home for this meal. And that's the setup. And just as a piece of trivia, there are seven different events in the Gospels where Jesus and the Pharisees come into conflict over the Sabbath, specifically over what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath day. Seven of them. Luke gives us four of those events. This is the fourth of those events. And so here we are in the the home of this Pharisee, this ruler, he surrounded himself with all of the other religious elite, those other people who are part of his circle, Pharisees and lawyers. And Luke tells us that in the middle of this crowd, there's a man with dropsy. Anybody know what dropsy is? Edema. Dropsy is the old word. The modern medical term is edema. Edema is swelling, excessive swelling inflammation of your body due to excessive fluid buildup, usually caused by some kind of organ failure, typically the liver or the heart. But for whatever reason, this man, who is swollen, obviously swollen, in pain and discomfort, is in the crowd. Now, he would not have normally been invited. In fact, we don't believe he's seated at the table because the Pharisees believed edema or dropsy was caught because of sin in your life. And Pharisees don't deal with those kind of people, right? And so this man would have been planted in the group of people standing around the perimeter. But everybody can see him. Everybody can see he's got a problem. It's obvious to everybody that this man has edema or dropsy. And we are told at the end of verse 2, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1, that the Pharisees were watching him carefully. 
You see, they have planted this man with dropsy in the crowd, knowing that Jesus is compassionate, knowing that Jesus is merciful, knowing that Jesus doesn't sit idly by when there's pain and suffering in his presence, that Jesus will do something. And so they're provoking Jesus to do something. They've set a trap to catch him, to do something wrong, to do something unlawful on the Sabbath day so that they have something to accuse him of. That's the setup. And so notice what happens in verse number three. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Say, hey, wait, can I stop? Did you read about any lawyer or Pharisee asking a question? It's got to be interactive here, right? Did you notice anybody asking a question in the story? Well, then what's Jesus answering? Ah, you see, Jesus knows their heart. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows the trap. He knows what's going on. You, you can't pull a fast one on Jesus. You all, you all know that, right? Even though they tried, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? That's a pretty simple question, right? That's either going to end in a yes or a no. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? What's the answer, church, to that question? Yes. The Old Testament law says it is okay to show mercy to those who are suffering even on the Sabbath day. The law allows it. So why does Jesus ask this question? I mean, it's kind of obvious. These are experts in the law. These are scribes and Pharisees. They know their Bible. Why is it that Jesus would ask such a simple question to these religious elites? Well, if, let, me, let me share with you what the answer is. Notice verse number four. But they remained silent. You know why? Because the answer to that question is a problem. If they said yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath day, now they're putting themselves into a hypocritical situation because the Pharisees, if you remember, took God's law and they padded all these other rules and regulations and put all of these stipulations of what you could and couldn't do because they were hypersensitive to figure out how to follow God's law without ever breaking it. So they found the middle and they drew this ginormous line that said, don't cross this. And they put all of these stipulations in place, very stringent measures to keep people from crossing the line and breaking God's law. So if they said yes, they were breaking their own rules. They were going to be called out for hypocrisy. So they can't say yes. But the problem is by saying no, it would make them look inhumane. It'd make them look evil. It'd make them look bad people. They, they don't want that either. They can't say yes. They can't say no. So they take the easy route out. They remain silent. Notice what Jesus does. By the way, Jesus doesn't care <laughs> how you answer the question. Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. Amen? And Jesus here, then at the end of verse 4, and Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. The word took him has the idea of embracing. You can imagine, I, I firmly believe Jesus is seated at one of the cushions. He gets up. He goes to the man with edema, and he hugs him. That's what I believe happened. And here is this man who's swollen, who's in discomfort, who's in pain. There's probably space around him because nobody wants to be near him. They don't know if it's contagious. And Jesus embraces him. And then all of a sudden, that swelling goes down. And all of that pain goes away. 
And whatever heart or liver or organ failure that was going on is made whole, and God and Jesus heals him and sends his home, sends him home whole. I mean, can you imagine for that man what a day that was? As all of the issues in his body were magically, miraculously, amazingly, divinely healed. God is so good. And he healed that man and sent him home. But Jesus isn't done. Notice what Jesus says in verse number 5 and 6 as he tries to drive this point home for these Pharisees. He says to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. You have to remember that back in this day and back in ancient cultures, in order to get water, they would dig wells. And so it would not be uncommon to find lots of open pits, lots of open wells all around the place as people were looking for, for water. And so because of the prevalence of all of these open wells and pits in the ground, it would not be uncommon for an animal or a child to fall into one of those. So this is a common problem. And Jesus asks them, the religious elites, these guys who had padded God's law with all of these rules, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? They couldn't answer. And now he comes around and says, which of you, if your child falls into a pit, wouldn't immediately pull him out? The answer is, of course they would. Of course they would. If it was their child or their animal and that fell into the pit, of course they would pull him out. That's a no-brainer. Of course, Jesus, we'd pull him out. See, they didn't have a problem with that. The God's law allowed that, and they didn't have a problem. If they were walking along the wayside on the Sabbath day and one of theirs fell in, they wouldn't think twice about it. They would throw down a rope or jump in and pull that animal or that child out. That's all good. But here's the point Jesus is making. That's okay on the Sabbath day. Why is it wrong to heal this man with dropsy? You see, taking care of their child or their animal, that's okay. But they were indifferent to the pain and the suffering of this man who was in their midst struggling because of a sickness in his body. And so Jesus, by healing this man, is making a profound statement. What he's saying is that this child of God that this man who has dropsy is a child of God, and God has the right to heal him even on the Sabbath day. Amen? That he's a child of God? That he's God's child, and God can rescue him from the pit of disease, even though everybody else doesn't think so. You see, they're all okay saving their own sons and daughters, saving their own donkeys and oxes. But this man's not theirs, and so they don't care. And yet God says, he's mine. He's mine. I get to save him when and where I please. And Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. I have to tell you, the Pharisees missed it. They missed the fact of the, of the truth that Jesus was trying to lay out. This is Jesus who's God in the flesh. This is Jesus who gave the law to Moses. This is the one that's standing in the midst. They missed the miracle. They missed the opportunity to recognize who Jesus is. The miracle worker. The way maker. He's the powerful one, the healer. He can do what he says he will do because he has the power to do it. They missed it. Why do they miss it? Because they had pride. You see, in their pride, they couldn't see him. In their pride, they missed the fact that Jesus was speaking the truth. In their hypocritical pride, they had padded so many rules around their regulations and laws 
that they couldn't see mercy and compassion through all of those layers, and they missed it. Why? Because of pride. And it was because of pride that they could not enjoy Jesus. They were proud to think that they were wrong and that Jesus was right. That begs a question for all of us, doesn't it? How about us? How much are we enjoying Jesus? Do we have an issue where we have a problem with what other people do, but at the same time minimize and excuse the same behaviors in us? Do we belittle other people to make ourselves look good? Are we so blind to the work of God in our own life that we cannot see that the other person is also a child of God, made in the image of God? Are we so proud that we can't see God's hand moving in others and we're blinded to the fact that God is the God of everyone, not just us? Friends, pride will keep us from enjoying Jesus. James reminds us in James chapter 4 that God opposes, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Perhaps this morning we need to take assessment of our own hearts and lives and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the pride in my life. I'm sorry for all the rules and regulations that I've plastered around. I'm sorry for holding everybody to my own standard. Lord, would you forgive me? And would you help me to experience your grace in a fresh way today? Because if you don't, then pride will prevent you from enjoying Jesus as you rightfully should. That's what happened to these Pharisees. But that brings me to the second truth, and that is humility <clears throat> allows us to enjoy Jesus. Humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. Notice verse number 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I find it, I find it very interesting that in verse number one, we read that all the Pharisees and the lawyers are watching Jesus closely. And in verse number 7, we find that Jesus was doing the same. He was watching them closely. And he sees something that he doesn't like, and so he addresses it. And what is it? That the moment the doors of the courtyard were opened for the dinner guests to come in, all of these men had started to do this strange social dance, trying to position themselves at the best possible place to be seated in a place of honor. So let me just set the stage because perhaps it's not so, um, so readily uh, memorable for us to think about it in this terms. When, when you had a meal in the ancient culture, you sat at a U-shaped table. The table was in the shape of a U and the host would sit at the center of the U. And all of the guests would sit around the U to the right and to the left of the host. But the best seats in that meal around that U were to the right and to the left of the host. And then the next set of seats were the next most honorable, and so on and so forth. The last set of seats at the end were the least important. They were the least honorable. And so people wanted to sit as close to the host as possible <coughs> because the closer you got to the host, the more honor, the more prestige, 
the more face and, and honor you received. And so these guys, when they came into the room or this courtyard, they were jockeying for position. They were trying to set themselves up to be seated as close to the host as possible. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that's kind of weird. Like, who does that? It must be a first century problem. Have you been to a wedding reception? Are you sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen? So let's walk with me. Who sits at the head table at a wedding reception? The wedding party. Who sits at the tables right next to them? Oh yeah, it does, doesn't it? And then the next set of family, and on down. And who sits way in back behind the pole by the speaker? Yeah, the, the ones you didn't want to invite but had to, right? Right? Come on, now don't tell me that doesn't happen. In fact, I have heard stories of people who refuse to sit at a reception because of the seats they've been given. It's, I've never seen it, but I've heard it. So don't tell me it doesn't happen. It does. There are seats of honor. And the closer to the bridal party's table you can get, the more honor, the more prestige, the more importance. The further away, the less important. Same deal. These Pharisees jockeyed for position, trying to find the best seats in the house because the closer they could get to the host, the more prominence, the more prestige they received. And so that's what's happening. And Jesus sees the pride, the pride of every one of these men whose only concern was their status as compared to everybody else's status in that room. And Jesus deals with the heart issue. Notice what he does. He starts by telling them what not to do. He says, don't take the best seat in the house. Don't do it. So if you're at a wedding feast, don't go sit at the table next to the bridal table. Because then the host will have to come to you and say, hey, I'm so sorry, that's reserved. that's reserved for the bride's parents. You can't sit there. But by the time he gets around to telling you that, guess what's happened? Everybody else is already seated. And guess what chair is left open? The one in the back by the pole next to the speaker. Yeah? And so you're going to have to get up from the front and work all the way to the back. That's called the walk of... Oh, you know that. Well, this is going to be easier than I thought. <laughs> You've been in a sporting event, and you're sitting in the nose seats, right? Way up, way far away from the game. And there's a bunch of people with you who couldn't afford the prices for down there. And all of a sudden, a couple of the guys in your section get up. And they start walking down those stairs and they find a cutout and they, they cut over and they keep going down. And now they're in that lower bowl right next to the field or the court or the glass. And, and they sit right at the edge and they're enjoying themselves. And you're thinking, why didn't I think of that? Like, wow, man, they're so lucky. And then the ticket guy shows up. Starts talking to them and says, tickets, please. And then you see them kind of stand up, hang their heads, hunch over. And what are they doing? They're walking away in the walk of? Yeah, you've seen that, haven't you? And all those people in that front, throwing popcorn at them or booing them and telling them, go back to where you are, because they are not where they are supposed to be. Friends, we should never aspire to places we should never be. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't take the best seats in the house. Instead, what Jesus says is, take the last seat. Take the lowest seat. So that when the host comes by and sees you sitting in the wrong seat, he has the opportunity to move you forward, to move you to a more and better and honorable seat. That's what he's saying. Now let me just be clear. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying for you to put on a staged or false humility. 
Because that's also pride, and that's also sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Don't just in false humility say, oh, it's okay, I'll sit back over here. No, no, no. No, he's talking about a heart condition. A heart condition where our thoughts and our mindset is that we esteem other people better than us. That we humble ourselves. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, you know, the, you realize that the ethic of the kingdom of God is completely upside down to what this world teaches, right? This world says, if you want to get ahead, what do you got to do? Promote yourself, market yourself, sell yourself, go to every networking session, meet as many big wigs as you can, because the only one who's going to get you promoted is you. Oh, you heard that. I heard it all my career. If you're going to get promoted, you're going to have to do it yourself. But do you know what the kingdom ethic says? The way up is the way down. And the way down is the way up. It's completely opposite to what this world teaches. This world says it's all about me. Me, 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 me. Give it to me. I want it. It's mine. And Jesus says, no. Kingdom ethic says it's about you. And it's about what God wants. And it's about God's will to be done, not my own. It's completely opposite to what we hear in this world. The best way to enjoy Jesus is to be humble. The best definition of humility that I've ever heard is from C.S. Lewis, who said, humility, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Can I read that again? Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. That means when we come into a room or we go to a party, we don't open the door and say, ha ha, here I am. The party can start because I'm here. No, no, that's not the way up, that's the way down. Because <laughs> that's focusing on me. The way of the kingdom is that you go into that room or you go into that party and you open the door and you say, oh, there you are. So nice to see you. How are you? See, I'm not esteeming me. I'm not lifting me. I'm not proclaiming me. What am I doing? I'm honoring and esteeming you. That's humility. That's humbleness. When I think less of who I am and more of what and who you are. Because that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? And we emulate that by honoring and esteeming others. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Friends, let's not exalt ourselves. Let's not reach for where we shouldn't reach. It's pride that says that we deserve the biggest peace. It's pride that tells us that we deserve that position. It's pride that says it's all about me. And it's pride that says that we deserve it. Humility says, Lord, I don't deserve any of this. But thank you for your grace. And when you surrender your life and your heart to Jesus and you put it all before him, the Bible says that God will exalt you in his time. It may not look like the way you wanted it. It may not be the same time frame you wanted it, but God will exalt you in due time. Amen? Isn't the biggest example of this Jesus? Jesus, today is Palm Sunday. Five chapters from this point in the story that we just read. Five chapters. Jesus will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. 
The people are so excited. They're taking off their outer coats and they're laying it on the ground for the donkey to walk on. And they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's so much excitement. But who is this that's riding on the donkey? It's Jesus. This is God the Son. He who inhabited the heavens, who was surrounded by the praises of the angels, who had all of the privilege and the glory and the honor of all of heaven, didn't think twice about holding on to heaven, did he? He gave up that privilege and he gave up that honor. And the Bible says that he humbled himself and he stooped from heaven to earth to become one of, like one of us. He became like you. He became like me. And that Jesus was born to a poor, poor couple in the back of a barn and raised in the backwaters of a little town in Galilee. And as he became an adult, he didn't even have a home. He had no place to lay his head. He humbled himself to become one of us. But then, that's Jesus who's riding this donkey into Jerusalem. To the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus knows that in just a few days from here, those same people who are shouting praises to him, those praises are going to turn to something else. Those same people are going to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus, who humbled himself and became a man, humbled himself even further and went to die on a cross. It was painful. It was shameful. It was agonizing. It was awful. We can never imagine the horrors Jesus went through on that cross. And we can't understand the depth of the love that held him to that cross. But there is Jesus, God the Son, hanging on a cross. He who knew no sin, all of a sudden, became sin for us. The way up is down. This Jesus who humbled himself died and was buried. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose. Amen? Jesus rose. And because the way up is down, God the Father has highly exalted him and has given him, church, a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, can you give God praise? Amen. Amen. That's who we're here to celebrate. That this one who was exalted came down. And because he died, he's now lifted high. God has lifted him high to the highest place. And all of our praise belongs to him. Amen? Amen. And so, the way up is down. The way we get to enjoy Jesus is to model the same thing he modeled for us. And that is humility. To say no to our pride. To say no to ourselves. To say no, it's not about me. It's about him and what he has done for me. That's not easy to hear. So you only have to hear this for 30 minutes and, and you get to leave. I had to spend a whole week getting beat up by these verses. I have to tell you, it was not fun and it's not pretty. And I have scars to prove it. But let me tell you, if you're feeling it right here, God's speaking to you. God's touching you and saying, pay attention, this is you. Because it was me. I had to hear this message. Where is it that I'm so full of pride? Where is it that I'm exalting myself? Where is it that I'm focused on me and not on other people? And not elevating him who is so worthy of our worship and so worthy to be exalted. How have I made this 
about me. Well, friends, it's not easy. But the best place to be is on our knees and to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for making it about me. I'm sorry for making this about what I want when it's all about you. And so, friends, if you're here this morning and this is you, may I invite you back to the cross. Because only at the cross can we truly see the truth of who we are and the truth of who Jesus is. The Jesus who humbled himself is truly the one who deserves our praise. You see, the proud, on the other hand, are the ones who say, I don't need God. I don't need saving. I can do this by myself. It's all about me, and I'm going to make it happen my way. That's what the proud say. The humble say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And we bend the knee, and we accept Jesus for who he is, Lord and Savior of our life. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, you've never bent the knee at the cross, can I invite you to come to know him today? You may have tried every which way to make sense of life, to get ahead, to fill that void in your heart, but may I say there's no place you're ever going to find that solution except at the foot of the cross. Because the cross says that we can't do for ourselves what Jesus has already done for us. May I invite you to the cross to say no to ourselves and to say yes to him. To say, Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for the sins I've committed. I'm sorry for making it all about me. And so I turn away from my sins and I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Would you come and save me? And the Bible says if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. And you get an invitation to enjoy eternal life forever with Jesus. But it starts with kneeling at the cross. Perhaps you're here and you have already done that, but may I challenge you perhaps to come back to the cross once again, to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. And the fact that we're saved isn't because of us, it's because of him. God didn't love us because there was something to love. You realize that, church, right? Like God didn't look down from heaven and say, oh, I like that one, I'm going to save him. No, no, God loved me in spite of me. And I am so thankful that he did And I'm so thankful he chose me before the foundation of the world. I'm not sure he'd have chosen me now. (laughs) And that's the truth. Thank God he chose me before the foundation of the world. Friends, if we've made this about ourselves, we need to stop. We need to turn our eyes back to the cross and back to him and make it about the one who it really is about. I was watching Indiana Jones and the last crusade. Right at the end of that movie, Indy is standing inside this temple, and he's on his way to get the Holy Grail. And he's holding in his hands the diary that his father gave him, which holds the clues to get through these booby traps. And he's at the edge of the first booby trap. And he's looking at the clue, and the clue is, only the penitent shall pass. Only the penitent shall pass. And he's shuffling slowly forward, just waiting for that booby trap to hit, trying to figure out what does this clue mean. Only the penitent shall pass. And as he steps forward, little by little, it clicks that a penitent person is a humble person. And a humble person is one who kneels before God. And so he quickly kneels. And just as he does, he avoids getting his head lopped off as the blade swings by. Go watch the movie, it's pretty good. But you see, that movie is true to life. If you're not willing to kneel, 
your ultimate destiny is to spend a life apart from God forever. Friends, I don't want that for you. I'm begging you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, would you bend the knee? Recognize that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died the death you and I should have died to give us a relationship with God we didn't deserve, would you bend the knee? And for all of us who love and serve him, let's bend the knee again and say, Lord, it's all about you and not about me. Help us to reorient our mindset to a kingdom ethic because it is in humbleness where we get to enjoy Jesus forever. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of the cross. Thank you for reminding us of the cost. Thank you for reminding us that it's not about us. That it's really about you. Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for not remembering that you have purchased us. That you have bought us. That it was your blood that saved us. That it was the cross where all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our future May we never forget the truth of who you are and what you've done. And may that always bring us to our knees. And as we go about our day and go about our week, whether it's at work or at school or at home or in our neighborhoods, may it never be about us. May we esteem others and may we esteem you as honored and highly exalted. And then when people see that in us, may they see you. And may we be able to give you the glory that is absolutely due unto your name. And we'll be careful to give you that glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand and let's worship God together.